0: Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with someone that I have respected and appreciated for a very long time. We've been talking back and forth at various different conferences and places of the sort about getting him on the podcast for literally years, I think like five years or something. And we're doing it. So that's exciting. So I'm happy to have Chris Kresser here today on the podcast. Uh, This conversation is good. I think it's good. Uh, We get into some of the psychosomatic relationships of our culture, of our mind, of our biology. Psychoneuroendocrinology is a fancy 50 cent word for that. The relationship of the way that our outer world affects our inner world and uh, a lot about a a balanced perspective on nutrition. I think we hear a lot of hoo-ha about various nutritional dogmas. You must only exclusively be this or you're going to hell or you're going to develop scabies or something. And I am tired of it. I mean, I don't really care that much to each his own, but I think that Chris does a phenomenal job at maintaining a balanced science-based slash intuition-based perspective. I think that just because science validates something, uh, one, science is slow. So science is based off of research that uh, first starts off with scientists having a hunch or an intuitive uh, sensation about a thing or people testing, experimenting with themselves, and eventually it turns into a study. Uh, Also, science is biased. You can find science to prove a lot of different points. Uh, you hear that within like the vegan or plant-based world versus the animal-based world a lot of science in both directions So I think it goes it really is important to come back into your own Listening of what feels correct for your body as opposed to comparing yourself to other people body other people's bodies Even if it was it was 4,000 other people's bodies in a, in a study or something of the sort So this conversation I think is meaningful. I think it's important. I think it's worth digesting chewing and masticating those are all synonymous. Well, chewing, masticating, synonymous. Digesting. Technically, chewing is digesting because you release amylase and various different enzymes that break down sugars in your mouth. So those are all synonymous. Let's get to it with Chris, mother freaking Cresser. I think he's great. I think you guys are going to dig it. Thank you for subscribing to this so you get each week's episodes. These episodes are really good, in my opinion. I think this podcast is worth subscribing to. And if it's not... I approve of of your perspective on that as well. Uh, Leave us some reviews if you're open to such things. That's a great idea. Great way to support the podcast. And that's it. Appreciate you. Big love. Let's get to it. Yeah, man. I've really been enjoying researching you and and getting getting into all your stuff. Something that I, I, I really value about you, Chris, is you have what I deem to be Um, from my perspective, a very balanced lens on health and nutrition and lifestyle and in a world or day and age where I think it's popular to be very polarizing um, because it's very engaging and many people's education is a product of what they see in headlines in their cell phone. Yeah. It's not an offense to any one individual. It's just accessibility. And, uh, and what we get with that, what's the most polarizing would be the most provocative headlines, which is things like, You gotta be carnivore, yep. you gotta be you gotta be keto, you gotta be vegan, you gotta ugh. and it's a lot of tribalism. And what I see underneath that is people yearning for community, I believe, yeah, and I identity and perhaps reaching for identity in various different nooks and crannies of the world. What what do you what do you think about?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I've I've worked hard for my entire career to have a balanced approach and then avoid dogma, and just stick, stay close to what the evidence suggests. And what when I say evidence, I mean not just modern clinical evidence, but also the you know archaeological, anthropological evidence. Um, my own experience as a practitioner treating thousands of patients and training thousands of healthcare providers, and, and then, of course, yes, the modern clinical research. Um, I'm kind of allergic to the, those kind of extreme dogmatic approaches, and I always have been. So it's, yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that came across for you because it's something that's really important to me. Are, are
0: there any standout issues or topics or points or belief systems that you were a staunch believer in in the last five to 10 years that your perspective has molded or shifted in the last, maybe particularly say two years since COVID or just in the last, just recent, is there any belief systems that you could even be back into childhood that you were like, you knew a thing and now you yeah, know different.
1: I mean, lots. <laughs> it's hard to pick just one, but you know, I think even with my, my first book on the paleo diet, it was already, the paleo template was what I was leaning, what I was pointing towards, which is like, look, you don't need to be a zealot and, and like be on a paleo diet all the time. And in fact, a lot of people do fine with dairy and some grains and, you know, a glass of wine and some chocolate and things that are, we're not trying to do paleo reenactment. And I would say over time, my, that's shifted even further where I, I'm, nutrient density is really the most important thing for me and that's the frame that i look through um so i wouldn't even say that i'm necessarily like paleo um in my approach i mean we may we might talk about this in the interview but um my view on supplementation has evolved and changed over time um sugar as a toxin yeah i mean it they usually they'll come up in conversation i think more than anything else yeah but I, I I try to change my mind as often as I can, <laughs> as often as the as the data you know suggests.
0: Something that I've I've been curious about, and something that's that my lens has probably focused more on in the last recent, um, or just I think just as I like I don't know as days go by, as it, you know, hopefully becoming mildly more mature than I previously was, the realization of how important relationships are. Mm-hmm. Um, and connection and like human contact and um like there's there's interesting research from dr tiffany field from university of miami I actually included this and in, i have a chapter all about touch in the book that i did a few years ago nice and um one of the popular studies that she's conducted was in relation to premature babies that were in incubators and she found that just adding, I believe it was like 15 minutes of, of massage a couple times a day while they were in there caused the infants to grow 47% faster than the ones that were undergoing just conventional medicine, yep. you know, yep. and keeping them sterilized and keeping them kind of distant and making sure they don't get sick. Um, I wonder how much of that, I wonder how much of what we're doing in the modern world of, of medicine and health and supplementation and all of the levers that we're pulling is, um, actually having the effect that we think it is compared to a lot of it being kind of hitting at Some, some other deeper aspects of like feeling like I'm a part of a community, feeling like I'm living a life on purpose, feeling like I'm like connected to something bigger than myself through the lens of nutrition, through the lens of exercise, through the lens of all these different places. Like, is that something that you think about with?
1: Oh, yeah. I had a chapter in my first book on social, the importance of social connection. And there's a pretty famous study, which I'm sure you've heard of, that lack of social connection is a greater risk factor for early death than high body mass index, um, cardiometabolic disease, and even smoking 15 cigarettes a day, yeah. um, which is pretty shocking for most people when they hear that. Yeah. and. You know, During the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a decline in measurable objective decline in social connection, real in-person meaningful connections. The number of people that claim to not even have a single confidant in their life, like not, not one person that they can confide in and really connect with on a deep level has increased pretty significantly. Or the number of people who don't have that has increased um, over... Yeah over the past few decades. And there are also, as you know, lots of studies that suggest that religious affiliation actually extends lifespan. And I think that's mostly the community element that people feel, feeling like if something happens to them, they have a, a tight-knit group of people that they can fall back on that will take care, help take care of them, that will support them, will pray for them you know, if you look at the history of our species, we lived in close-knit tribal social groups for the the vast, vast majority of our evolutionary history. And in fact, in many parts of the world, that's still how people live, you know, multi-generational homes with grandma and grandpa, you know, three, three generations living in the same house or at least very close by in the village. Um, and now in the industrialized world, we live in, isolated nuclear family arrangements for the most part, which is um, really foreign to how human beings have lived for most Mm -hmm. of our existence. And and so, yeah, I think a lot about these things and I think it's a very critical piece of just, I wouldn't even say just health, I would just say wellness and and, um, being alive as a human being. And the, uh, the effects of the pandemic just exacerbated that current, that trend that was already happening and shined a big powerful light on it. And I think it brought it forward to people's attention, how important that was because people had a sort of more extreme version of that experience where in many cases they were isolated in their, in their own house by themselves in some cases, or maybe with one or two, you know, one other, a partner roommate or something like that. And just doing, you know, mostly interacting with people online and and people had a, a firsthand experience of, of what that feels like and didn't like it. And so hopefully maybe one of the silver linings that comes out of the pandemic is that, um, and i've seen this anecdotally in my own communities is that people are seeking out and valuing in-person connection maybe more than they were before the pandemic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, i i i've heard i just had um, last week we released an episode with Gabor Mate, who's who
1: mm. just had Yeah, i love his work.
0: Normal. He's great. Um and you know a part of the conversation with him was a lot about, you know, the relationship that our emotions have to physiological expression Mm -hmm. manifesting themselves maybe as autoimmune disease or you know chronic fatigue or anxiety or depression or all of these different possible things and something that I've heard you discussing was you know the the bioavailability of a food is quite important for us to be able to actually be able to gather nutrients from the food but then there's also the terrain that the food is interacting with being our our gut and then our gut is tied into all of the other parts of ourself is there some room for an emotional conversation or like a psychosomatic conversation in the realm of how we process nutrition
1: absolutely i mean i, I studied many many years ago chinese medicine and th- this has been a part of chinese medicine for 2500 years it's also a part of ayurveda and many other traditional systems of medicine in fact, they in Chinese medicine, there's no separation between the mind and the emotions and the body. They look at at, at the at, at everything together in a sort of systems framework. And so, for example, they ha- there's a certain emotion that is associated with the heart and the actual organ of the heart, and also the the system uh, that the heart governs in the body in the in that. TCM framework, same thing with the liver, uh, large intestine, small intestine, all of the other, um, organs and organ systems in the body. And, and, you know, whether or not anyone believes in that exact, um, designation or way of looking at it, I think it's interesting that pretty much all traditional systems of medicine that I'm aware of, uh, don't didn't see a separation between the mind and the body. And, and I would argue that that's actually the correct view, according to our understanding of how the body works now and the brain and and cellular intelligence and um, the the way that cells communicate and and operate in the body, uh, both as part of a network and independently. And that there's clearly intelligence that is present in every cell of the body in the way that we understand intelligence. Mm -hmm. And now we have decades and decades of research from people like Gabor Mate, but also Bernie Siegel uh, and many other pioneers in the field showing clear, crystal clear relationships between um, psychological states, emotional states, spiritual practices like meditation and prayer and uh, very measurable, objective, physiological outcomes. So, yeah. uh, and, and the gut is perhaps the best example of that actually, because as, as I'm sure you've heard, some scientists refer to it as the second brain. Uh, this is the enteric nervous system. The gut is essentially one big bundle of nerves. So it's, a, it's, an, it's part of our nervous system. And we, we even have language that reflects this. You know, common sayings like, I have a gut feeling uh, that go way, way back in, in our language recognize this, this connection between our emotions and psychological states and our physiology. Uh, I think even before science really started to understand the mechanisms uh, beneath yeah. those connections.
0: Yeah, one of the things Gabor mentioned in the conversation is... I'm paraphrasing him and he's paraphrasing praising Socrates, but he said 2,400 years ago, Socrates said something like the problem with doctors these days is they, they keep separating the
1: mind and the body. <laughs> you know, and that was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah,
0: but like even more now.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what else he said, or uh, Hippocrates, not Socrates, but 2,500 years ago, contemporary, similar yeah. time yeah. said all disease begins in the gut. Right. So they knew that then. And there, I think there was a lot of knowledge that was lost uh, over, over time and then has, has been recently rediscovered by modern science uh, and this connection between the gut and the brain and also, as you mentioned, emotions in the gut and how that can affect uh, processing, absorption, assimilation, utilization of nutrients from food. I mean, we've all had a direct experience of this. If you ate a meal and then had some upsetting... News, or yeah. you know, you had upsetting news and went ahead and ate a meal after that as a way of dealing with that upsetting news. You probably didn't digest your food that well, uh, and and had some maybe some gut pain or gas or bloating or something like that after heartburn. Everyone, almost everyone's had an experience this, a direct experience, and I think now we're starting to see the research find, catch up uh, yeah. with with what people already know. Something.
0: Uh, it's been curious for me as well as I I wonder how much sovereignty people have over their food choices in a way. And what I mean is the, like I feel like most people have ample information as to what, you know, quote unquote, like good decisions are maybe, maybe not actually, maybe I'm, I'm living in, in bubbles. I guess there is a lot of varying information out there. Um, if you look like the food pyramid, but, um, for people that say they have pretty decent information of what they're supposed to do to live like a healthy whole life and all the things still not making the decisions to eat the foods that yield the benefits is what's going on there is there some parasitic conversation or you're feeding some type of microbes that are like you know nasty creatures inside of you and you're supporting those guys is it some type of psychological self-sabotage thing is it some kind of, like why do we make bad decisions
1: yeah i think i think it's there, there are multiple factors there so first of all i think there is a lot of confusion in, in, in out there about what to eat um and you know you and i might have our opinions about that and maybe most of the people that we interact with are pretty well educated but i i have you know as I'm sure you do, lots of friends from lots of different areas of my life. And occasionally we'll chat about nutrition and I'm, I'm often just curious, you know, what they think and what, you know, what they're, what information they're taking in from what sources and how that's influencing their choices. I always like to just kind of in a very open non-judgmental way, just find out what people are thinking. And, um, I can tell you from those types of conversations that, it's all over the map and it really depends on the sources that people are exposing themselves to of course especially in today's highly polarized you know social media environment where we tend to live in sort of echo chambers that enforce our that, that reinforce our confirmation bias rather than actually exposing ourselves to multiple different points of view um, so that is one piece of it and I, and i think it's it's just worth noting that 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 people are really confused, uh, understandably. Um, But let's say someone knows what they want to do and they're pretty clear on that and they still have trouble doing it. This, I mean, uh, we uh, until very recently had a health coach training program and one of the core principles of health coaching and any kind of coaching for that matter, life coaching, executive coaching, whatever, Anything that has anything to do with behavior change is—is is this information is not enough to change behavior, right. uh, and and that's because we have a limbic system. <laughs> you know, we're we're not just a, a frontal cortex uh, walking around making rational, well thought out decisions. We're motivated by many factors, including you know strong emotions, um, fear, desire, hope, longing aversion um some some very primitive you know primal uh biologically hardwired mechanisms so for example human beings are generally programmed to seek out highly calorie dense and rewarding foods because in a natural environment where food scarcity was a bigger threat than food abundance that was something that would have protected our survival you know if and when we encountered a great source of calories if like a beehive for example with honey in it right we would just eat as much of that as we could because you never knew when you were going to run into that kind of jackpot again and that was just a way that we survived in a natural environment and so we still have that same programming but now it backfires because we're in a you know not everybody but people living in the industrialized world food abundance is a much greater problem than food scarcity and particularly abundance of highly processed and refined foods that are super dense in calories and super low in nutrients. So that same programming that helped us to survive in a natural environment is actually killing us literally in the modern environment that we live in. And so I think that's another piece of things where we have this really, um, a deeply hardwired biological programming that we have to overcome in order to make good choices, and that isn't easy to do. It's not easy to override limbic system, you know, uh, hypothalamic programming, hedon- the hedonic, you know, reward-seeking behavior with rational thought. Um, it's just not. And the people who are more successful at doing it have often created systems. Um, that make that easier. So an example would be, if you come home from work and you've had a super stressful day, we know from lots of studies that quarter, that elevation in cortisol will drive certain behaviors, one of which might be craving uh, salty, sweet, calorie dense food. If you happen to have a bag of potato chips in the pantry or a you know pint of ice cream in the freezer, you might not be able to resist that. Why is that that? drive?
0: Is that because the body is getting the signal that it needs fast energy? Is it the body? Is it signaling that there's not enough resources I need to fill up? Like, do you have a sense of what, why the body? Yeah. I mean,
1: stress, stress, I think. So first of all, it, there's a physiological element of just how stress affects cortisol levels and how cortisol affects blood sugar and then blood sugar, changes in blood sugar can affect our appetite. Um, another, I think is what you suggested where stress is often like that activates the threat system. And in, in, when the threat system is activated, um, you know, uh, again, from an evolutionary perspective, we having more energy on board is probably a good thing to deal with most of the historical threats that, that we were facing. Maybe not so much now, you know, your 401k tanking having more calories on board isn't really going to help with that. But if a lion was stalking you or, you know, it, it, there was some other kind of threat in the natural environment, it would. Right. So I think a, a lot of, you know, this sounds kind of depressing in a way to say it, but I think it's important to actually get real about it and, and accept the the truth of this is that the modern environment is working against good choices in so many different ways from, the information that we're exposed to, the food environment that we live in, where there's we're surrounded by you know highly processed food, 60% of the calories the American average American consumes now come from ultra-processed food, sleep deprivation, even a single night of, of uh, uh low amount of sleep has been shown to affect, profoundly affect cortisol levels and affect judgment around food. So it leads to bad food choices. And again, I'm sure lots of people have experienced this firsthand. Um, sedentary lifestyle, which has all kinds of um, adverse effects on our physiology, circadian disruption, where too much exposure to light at night simulates cortisol production, suppresses melatonin. That can lead to late night eating Right. Uh, which is really bad for our <laughs> metabolic health. So there, there's so many factors. And I think understanding that information is not enough is maybe the first step in setting and in, in, in then creating changes in your behavior and in your environment that actually can support the right decisions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like most of the, I don't know about most, maybe most, uh, but a lot of the diseases of today would fall into a category of like diseases of, of mismatch is the yeah. is the term for that where it's just like we're not really a, adapted for this world you know our genetics haven't caught up to the the, the shift that we've manifested with you know industrial revolution and technolo- technology and you know for us to be able to be inside a house with air conditioned air and artificially you know alternating current blue lights flipping over and Wi-Fi and all these signals and then separation seclusion from community and all these different St- all it real happened real fast
1: really fast <laughs> like real fast yeah on an evolutionary time scale it's the blink of an eye literally yeah so
0: it seems like there's um a term that I learned from you recently listening to you on another podcast that I think you stumbled into unless in last however you know whenever it was was uh, pleiotropic effects which is something i think it's used with like medications and such mm-hmm. it's like oh we meant to have it you know this it's a statin for this but it actually has these other effects or whatever it is but so the intended use was this but by the way it actually it's kind of a shotgun for this other stuff i feel like sometimes in the modern world we can get um confused the the forest for the trees or, or how's that phrase go miss, miss the forest for the trees. That's so right. We get, we get they so focused access-
1: on the trees.
0: Yeah. So we get so stuck in specificity that perhaps we miss the value of something that is maybe a little bit more broad and a little bit more pleiotropic in nature, uh, such as maybe, maybe nature, you know, or some yeah. of these other, these other, you know, more pretty semi accessible, pretty affordable mm-hmm. available aspects that we could lean into, but we're so deep in the weeds of the specificity. And then there's also the balance. And sometimes we need some specificity to get us back to a point to be able to get out in the woods, you know, and have the, have the the motivation to do so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You asked before, you know, about things I've changed my mind about or think, you know, how my perspective has evolved over time. And I would say this is one of the biggest areas where, Mm -hmm. you know, My background is I suffered from a debilitating chronic illness for 10 years that I eventually recovered from, and that's what brought me into functional medicine and the work that I'm doing now. And I I learned a lot of hard lessons during that journey, and that was definitely one of them, that when I became myopically focused on um, diet or supplements or any particular um, intervention that I thought was going to have a specific effect, especially when it was at the expense of the other, those other pleiotropic interventions, like spending time outside, connecting with friends, um, getting enough sleep, you know, um, doing things that I love and enjoy laughing and having fun. Um, I generally suffered. I mean, there were certainly, key interventions and things that I did that were instrumental in taking my health forward a big step. And like you said, allowing me to be able to do some of those other um, more pleiotropic interventions. But I learned, you know, I I talk about in my work with patients zooming in and zooming out. So what I mean by that is I think it's important for most people, whatever their goals are, and why am I even just talking about health here, to learn to have this rhythm between zooming in on a particular detail or thing that we're focusing on. It could be, in this case, in the context of health, it could be a, a special diet, or it could be a supplement regimen, or could be getting a bunch of lab tests done to try to figure out what's going on. But at some point, It's, I always found it helpful and and my patients that I shared this perspective with did as well, it's important to zoom out and not get too sucked into that very um, specific focus and to make sure that we are taking time to do those other um, bigger picture things that we know are supportive to our health, no matter what the problem is. That's the key thing is like, we don't exercise for just one reason. Most of us don't. Yeah. We don't eat well just for one reason. We don't sleep just for one reason. We do all of those things because they they're the rising tide that lifts all boats. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that in in, in our in our world today.
0: I want to take a moment and share the first thing that I do every day upon waking up, and I find it to be invaluable for increasing my energy levels and improving my digestive health, as well as giving me a sense of reassurance that I'm getting the vitamins, minerals, and pre and probiotics that I need for a healthy gut and healthy body. That is taking a scoop of a G1. A G1 from Athletic Greens is so much more than just a greens powder. Essentially, if you took your multivitamin, a mineral supplement, and a pre and probiotic, and wrap that up into one delicious beverage. That is what you're getting with AG1. I'm a massive fan of this stuff. It's the first thing I do every day. I originally learned about it through a friend called Andrew Huberman that I'm sure y'all are familiar with, and he has been a massive fan of AG1 from Athletic Greens since 2012. He stands by it, I stand by it. It's the first thing I do every day. I wake up, do a scoop of that, I take a little walk outside, I get some sunlight, and I find it to be an incredibly delicious way to know that I'm hitting my bases with getting my daily nutrients as well as improving my short and long term gut health. So if you all want to take ownership of your health, today is a great time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one year supply of vitamin D, which is invaluable, especially considering it's winter, as well as five free travel packs with your first purchase. I think this stuff is an absolute no brainer. So you can get started by going to athleticgreens.com align. That's athleticgreens.com align. That's a T H L E T I C G R E enscom line so confident you guys are gonna enjoy this stuff jump over check it out athleticgreens.com slash align it's interesting and as you're saying like like the you know the the concept of having a gut feeling of how there's more truth to that than than what we might think mm-hmm. just in the phrase as you're speaking you're using language like zooming in and zooming out and losing sight and then you could look at that also from the physiological effects of actual myopic focus with our vision compared to yeah. panoramic focus. And if you go outside and you take a walk and you know you raise your vision up and you look up into the trees and into the clouds and you're getting sunlight on your eyes and you're taking in the panorama, that's like pleiotropic AF. You're yeah. just getting <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, 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 most of, of us speaking for myself, you know, are, are, are highly myopic, you know, in lit- literally and, and figuratively, and it's because, you know, form, um, form informs function, you know, or structure, structure and function are tied together, you know, so as you change the structure of, of the, the body, um, You know, I think it's congruent with the way that we feel and the way that we express ourselves at a physiological level. Any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, a very interesting example of what you were just saying related to eyesight and vision and how that impacts our physiology and our well-being is they've done studies showing that when our eyes focus too much on a two-dimensional surface, which is usually a screen. I mean, it yeah. could be a book too, but um, it's generally the research was done on screens and we sit in fr- like in close proximity to screen like I'm doing right now, You know, about maybe one and a half feet away. Uh, and we do that for an extended period. They found that in children, this actually inhibits the development of empathy. Mm-hmm. And that can seem totally bizarre. Like how, how could looking at a screen and any screen, it doesn't matter what they're looking at. It's not just like playing violent video games, inhibits empathy. It's any kind of just extended interaction with a two dimensional screen. Hmm. And the theory behind that is that as, as you pointed out, or you alluded to, like we, we, we evolved in a three dimensional world, <laughs> you know, we evolved it, um, spending most of our time outdoors in that expansive environment where we have a near view a mid view and a far view and and that as it turns out i don't fully understand the relationship between that and and the development of empathy but it's important enough that there have been many studies published on this now and it's one of the reasons that still you know american academy of pediatrics and other organizations recommend limiting screen time In young children, because once that window has passed for the development of empathy, it doesn't develop in the same way later on. It's a really critical developmental window. So it's just one of many examples of how this could play out. I
0: wonder wonder how much of that, and I want to get into particularly nutrient density and deficiencies and things of the sort. Um, I I just, I really enjoy exploring these more like Mm -hmm. kind of metaphysical, you know, metaphysical slash physical type conversations, but I wonder how much of the perhaps the deficiency in empathy could be a product of not just the screen itself, uh, or the, the, maybe the seclusion from other people just for the sake of seclusion sake, but also like a bacterial conversation where when you're around people and you're playing, you're kind of developing awareness of people, not just at, you know, their personalities, but you're, you know, you're literally breathing that person in, and the pheromones and the bacteria, like you're exchanging information at a very, at at many levels. Whereas if you're alone, you know, reading a book or looking into a screen, you know, in a probably a sterilized room, especially post COVID, you know, and make sure you get your hand wipes and everything's kind of cleared out. And you're kind of in this sterile environment, looking into the screen, it would make sense that there, I'd imagine there's a lot of levels to that. I know I'm reaching right now and I don't I don't know any like data around this, but it's just an interesting thing to start to wrap one's mind around
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I again I don't I don't know for sure it's it's outside of my area of expertise, but it's yeah. an interesting hypothesis. And I, I think just in a general sense, when we look at behaviors that are really outside of the evolutionary norm, it that in and of itself is not a reason to automatically condemn them. Um, you know, for example, I like a refrigerator. I like having a refrigerator. (laughs) Uh, Our ancestors didn't have refrigerators. Um, there are probably some detrimental effects of refrigeration, but not that many. I, I feel like my life's better off with a refrigerator. Um, but you know, it's generally at least worth asking the question like, oh, this is something we're doing a lot of today. We didn't do historically, let's check it out. Like, let's see if there is something that we need to know about that. And I think using screens to the extent that we're using them now definitely falls into that category. And there have been many researchers who've been asking lots of good questions about that and getting some answers that are kind of scary, actually, you know, for both adults and children in terms of the impact that excessive screen use can have. Now I'm not a zealot around this. Obviously I use screens quite a bit. It's, you know, the nature of my work requires it, but, um, I'm also pretty, I think pretty, um, honest with myself and open about the impacts that that has on me personally. And also the research that I take in, um, uh, on this topic and, I, I think it's a, a big area of concern. I mean, yeah I, in a, in a perfect world, to be honest, I would use screens very little. you know, I, I, maybe an hour or two a day. I would be happier if if that were the case.
0: I think it's I think it's also it's not just the uh, there's a way to integrate ancestral wisdom with modern technology and lifestyle. And I think that is the path forward for my you know my perception. And so within that, it's like the ancestral aspects that you could start to integrate in there would be like, cool, maybe I'm using the screen actually to truly develop my in-person community. And that's really what I'm doing. We're, We're setting up meetups, you know, we're doing things of the sort. Maybe I'm doing screen time outside. Maybe I'm allowing more sun exposure while I'm doing it. Maybe I'm, you know, there's, it's, I think there's compared to I'm using the screen as a, a way to kind of like escape, you know, and actually seclude more, um, but something that's to actually related over to to nutrition because I have a lot of questions specifically about that. Um, Alan Watts has a has a bit where he talks about confusing the, the menu for the meal, and I think that we do that a lot with our screen time and our screen friends and our relationships and our screen notifications. And it's like this this we feel it's this connection, but we still feel hungry, and we still yearn for more, and that becomes a compulsive, addictive behavior. There's also that trend with uh, nutrition, you know, so that gets into like the triage effect, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Um, so I'd love to link our relationship with technology and such and the way that we engage with it with our relationship with nutrition. So could you explain the, the triage effect and, and and if you see any kind of relationships yeah. there?
1: actually I'll I'll start with the nutrient leverage hypothesis which I think is even better segue yeah. and you just alluded to it actually um, there is the protein leverage hypothesis which is fairly well established and there, you know there's some debate about it still in the scientific literature I wouldn't say it's universally accepted but I, I think it's a pretty strong hypothesis and this is the idea that when humans when we don't meet our protein needs through, um, diet. We will keep eating until we mm-hmm. until we do. Essentially, we'll, we'll overeat right. carbohydrates and fat as a way of trying to, to meet our protein needs. Mm. Um, and this has been posited as one of the causes of the of the modern obesity epidemic. I think we can extend that, and it's some researchers are already starting to do this to uh, to create a micronutrient leverage hypothesis, which is very similar. Uh, we need according to Dr. Bruce Ames, about 40 micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients to function optimally. And when we don't get enough of those, we will keep eating whatever food is available, which is often nutrient depleted in an effort to meet those uh, micronutrient needs. And and that can also cause overeating and contribute to the obesity epidemic. Hmm. For the record, I think there are many causes of the obesity epidemic, not just one, uh, but I think both of those are are totally viable um, theories. And so then, where triage comes into this is in the context of nutrient deficiency. And and triage theory is also uh, from Dr. Bruce Ames, who I just mentioned. And this idea holds that all of the proteins in the body and everything that happens in the body, by the way, for those that don't know, is happening on uh, uh, proteins are are causing that to happen. Proteins are, are uh, running the show. Basically everything that every, biochemical reaction that takes place in the body involves a protein. So so they're very essential to um, our physiology. And Dr. Ames says that all proteins can be broken into two categories, survival proteins and longevity proteins. Mm -hmm. As as those names suggest, survival proteins are the ones required for immediate short-term survival, and longevity proteins are those required for Medium to long-term health and well-being, extending our health span, things like our endocrine system, uh, reproduction, um, you know, metabolism, etc. And so, here's the the kicker: the those proteins, the survival ones and the longevity ones, require the same micronutrients, the same vitamins and minerals as cofactors. If there is a shortage of those vitamins and minerals, the body will triage those and direct them to the survival proteins. Hmm. And then the longevity proteins do not get those nutrients and they suffer. And that's a smart response. The body should prioritize what's required for immediate short-term survival. That's again, an evolutionary mechanism that would have protected us and enabled us to pass on our genes. Hmm. But, What that means is that when people are suffering from even suboptimal nutrient intake, I'm not talking about full-blown clinical deficiency that would cause diseases like scurvy or rickets or beriberi or pellagra. We're talking about suboptimal intake. Then that that triage kicks in and we can see things like a shortened lifespan, Increase in cardiovascular and metabolic disease, increase in dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cognitive and neurological disorders, mood disorders—pretty much the whole gamut. Because nutrients are the fuel um, that run that the body runs on.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I see that one the the perhaps metaphor of like lacking micronutrients going into like deep interpersonal relationships and all of that. I think is really interesting, you know, like powerful. Um, and and then within that, I think as well, the, the human tendency to kick the can down the road, you see that in the economy. You see that maybe in your taxes each year. It's like, okay, we'll figure this out. Let's, there's some way to push this into the next year. We'll, we'll, we'll get it done next year. You know, we, we have that tendency in the way that we, we act in our lives. It's interesting to see that as like, oh, like at a cellular level. That's how we engage as well. It's like, we'll just, we got to sort this out right now. We'll just kick this down. We'll sort this out later. It's very interesting to see that, that, uh, that connection. But the, the next thing that I'm, I'm curious about within that would be um, coming into the actual uh, bioavailability of, of food. And I've heard, what is the, the, the study where they, they measured that and liver was number one and I think spleen and then heart and then, yeah. um, can you explain, cause that's very, very, I think meaningful to have a a grasp of bioavailability of the food that we're actually taking
1: in. I'm glad you asked It, It is super important. And it's something that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Um, so bioavailability refers to the amount of a nutrient that we actually absorb and utilize when we eat it. And most people understandably, because we, we don't get education about this in you know, in school, um, most people assume that if, you, if they pick up a nutrition label and they, they see you know, X milligrams of calcium um, on that nutrition label, they assume that they'll absorb all of those milligrams of calcium because it's printed right there on the label. So uh, I'll give you an example. Spinach on paper is a fantastic source of calcium. It's got 115 milligrams of calcium in one serving. Given that the RDA for calcium is 1,000 milligrams a day for most people, that's pretty cool, right? I could, I could get one-tenth of the, of the RDA of calcium if I just eat this one serving of spinach. But um, when you look deeper into it and you consider bioavailability, the bioavailability of calcium in spinach is only 5%. So of that 115 milligrams, you will only absorb 6 milligrams, and this means that you would actually, if you wanted to get that full hundred, and, uh, f, you know, full ration of of calcium, you would need to consume sixteen cups of spinach to get mm. the same amount of bioavailable calcium that you get from one glass of milk. Mm. And this affects everything. So RDA, uh, recommended dietary allowance, the RDA does not consider bioavailability. So if we go back to that hundred or a thousand milligram RDA for calcium, and someone is using an online tool or even just by hand they're calculating, okay, let's see how many servings of how many different foods I need to eat to reach that RDA. And they include calcium or spinach because it lists 115 milligrams, they will be misled. They will believe that they're getting close to the RDA for calcium because that food label does not tell them that they are only going to absorb 5% of the calcium that's in that spinach. So I think it's a huge problem. And the study you were referring to um, was, uh, I think, a landmark study um, because most of the previous research that has been done on the nutrient density of foods did not consider bioavailability. And to be fair to researchers who published that previous work, it wasn't easy to, to do that because most of the publicly available databases that researchers use to quantify nutrient density didn't publish information about bioavailability. So mm. this only became possible fairly recently. Um, this paper was by Ty Beal and Flaminia yeah, right. Uh Ty is a research advisor at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. I believe this is an NGO they're mostly concerned with, end, you know, addressing malnutrition worldwide. And they'll be the first to tell you that malnutrition is an issue not only in the developing world, but also in the, the richest countries of, in the world, like the United States. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to identify the foods which are highest in, in in some the essential nutrients that tend to be of the greatest concern worldwide. So these are iron, zinc, folate, vitamin A, calcium, and B12. And then they ranked foods according to the nutrient density. And the the specific definition here was that um, they ranked the the foods according to the calories and grams or grams needed to provide an average of one third of the recommended intakes of these nutrients. So the scoring was based on that. A lower score is good because that means you needed fewer calories of that food in order to reach that basic nutrient threshold that they identified. Mm. So liver was numb, was, was at the top of the list by far. It had a score of 11.
0: liver liver is king.
1: We've established liver is king. There's liver something is- <laughs> to it. There's something to it. Um, so the next closest food was another organ, which is spleen at 62. So that was five times, lower in nutrient density than even than liver and but spleen is still you know that that's not so much a criticism of spleen as it is just wow liver is amazing as a source Mm. of those nutrients i'll keep reading the next few uh small dried fish is next at 65 dark leafy green vegetables 72 so that's your kale collard greens um, bok choy etc bivalves like oysters, 90, Uh, kidney, 125, heart, 163, crustaceans, shellfish, uh, 193, goat, 205, beef, 275, and eggs, 281. So of those top foods, as you could tell, organs were, four of them were organs, liver, spleen, kidney, and heart. Then we had small dried fish, uh, bivalves like oysters and crustaceans. So shellfish being three out of the top 10. And then dark leafy greens uh, was the only plant food in that top 10 list when it comes to essential nutrients. And this was the first study that considered bioavailability in their rankings.
0: Mm. It's interesting with that. I I wonder, I've heard you also speak on some of the potential origins of a transition away from uh say like eating meat or the idea of like bone broth or organs or things of the sort uh, and it, i i know of kellogg as an interesting example where like mm. kellogg cornflakes a part of that was actually to re- to reduce uh sexual desire uh he was a big fan of clitorectomies of women Um, I don't know a lot about Kellogg, but some of the things that I I do know, it's like, it's, it's pretty scary. I'm sure he was, you know, probably a a sweet man in some aspects as well, but a lot of things I've read, I'm like, Oh boy. But a part of Kellogg's cornflakes actually was, uh, to reduce those carnal desires. So you're not some rapacious animal and it's to bring kind of bring you back down to, you know, I don't know, closer to God, I guess. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on the origins of how food has been manipulated over the years and is still being manipulated by, you know, all individuals that are attempting to, I don't know, gain some type of authority, you know, through any way that they can, including food and dietetics,
1: but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you, you mentioned a few examples early on the, Animosity toward animal products was came out of uh, religious attitudes, and um, it was believed, perhaps quite accurately, that animal products would increase carnal desires. And by that, I mean, you know, liver and other animal products provide nutrients that can actually give us a lot of energy. (laughs) And sexual desire is a normal part of being human. And so, if if our energy increases and we're feeling great. Uh, It it, it's not uh, hard to understand how sexual desire could increase, and so some of the people that were involved in the early forming of dietetics um, organizations in the United States had this view that Mm. animal products should be avoided or limited because um, they could increase carnal desires, and that was not desirable from their particular point of view. And then you know it becomes a sort of opinion looking for um, looking for confirmation. This is the, the nature of confirmation bias, where we start out with a conclusion and then we go and find um, facts or research that supports that conclusion. It's kind of the opposite to how the scientific method is meant to be performed, where we start with a, hypo- a tentative hypothesis and we set ab- out to prove it wrong. Um, that's generally how the scientific method is prescribed. Hmm. Um, In this case, it's let's try to prove it. This is my belief and then let's try to prove it right. Um, Which is a very different approach. And uh, it's often quite shocking to most people. uh, And I would put myself in this category when they first learn that the history of a lot of these attitudes, which we now believe were just purely scientific or, you know, came out of early research, um, was based in these sort of moral and religious attitudes and affiliations, not in, you know, er, scientific research. Hmm. Um, and then there's also politics and economics, of course. So, um, It's just a reality of the world that we live in that big food, you know, capital B, capital F, um, many of these food companies make most of their money on highly processed and refined foods. And, uh, many of these foods contain sugar and there are lots of published peer reviewed papers that show how, uh, these food companies have sought to undermine any evidence suggesting that sugar is harmful um, you go, if you go to dietetics conference, even today, you'll see Pepsi and, uh, Nestle and many other of these big food companies sponsoring tables there. They put, you know, you see Pepsi as a beverage provided and, you know, out of nutrition and dietetics conference. I mean, it seems stranger than fiction in some way, but this is, I just saw a paper actually. I'm going to see if I can find, um, the name of it. It was just published. Oh yeah, here it is. The Corporate Capture of, nutri- of the Nutrition Profession in the USA, the case of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. This was just published on October 24th of last year. And the, conclu- the conclusion is uh, the a and Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, and its key leaders have ongoing interactions with corporations, uh, the AND's leaders hold key positions in multinational food, pharmaceutical, or agribusiness corporations and accept corporate financial contributions. And then we found that the AND invested funds in corporations like Nestle, PepsiCo, and pharmaceutical companies and has discussed internal policies to fit industry needs and has public positions favoring corporations. <laughs> this was a paper that was published in uh, the journal Public Health Nutrition. So it's not a secret. You can find all this stuff, it's publicly available, and it has definitely directly impacted American uh, uh, views of nutrition all around the world.
0: I wanna take a moment and dispel a common myth that just by eating a buttload of protein, you're suddenly gonna develop more muscle. Protein necessitates enzymes in order to be actually broken down for your body to absorb. So let's say you eat an eight ounce chicken breast, you're consuming about 40 grams of protein. However, just because something contains 40 grams of protein, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to absorb all 40 grams. Without enzymes, most of it ends up in your toilet bowl. So because your small intestines can only absorb protein that's been broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids, it doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein if you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein your muscles will be starving for those vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial to take a high quality enzyme. But before you run out and buy a bottle of enzymes, you need to know exactly what to look for. The truth is most enzymes are of little to no value. If you want to build muscle, the one I trust and use myself and love is called Mass Enzymes by Mass Enzymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available with five different kinds of protease. Plus it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion and you can try it today, absolutely risk free. They have a 365 day money back guarantee. So if you don't absolutely love the stuff, you get your money back. I uh, just go to masszymes.com slash align. You can enter the coupon code align10 to get 10% off your order. That's spelled M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S.com slash align for 10% off your order. If you do not notice a difference in your digestion and your gains and all the things you would desire from this product, get your money back. No questions asked, masszymes.com slash align. I want to take a moment and share about something that has truly made a massive difference in my life as of recent. That is going through the diagnostic process with LifeForce. LifeForce is a health optimization company that is bringing a personalized approach to help you take control of your health. It all starts with the Life Force Diagnostic, a comprehensive blood test that measures over 40 biomarkers that impact your mental and physical health. From your nutrient levels, to hormone balance, to key risk factors, for disease and much more the life force diagnostic gave me a snapshot of precisely what the heck is happening inside of my body then the next step i jumped on a call with a life force functional medicine doctor and she was absolutely amazing i asked her a whole gamut of questions and uh, it's probably a pretty annoying patient i would say because i just kept asking questions and she kept having answers she was incredibly welcoming incredibly sweet and just really brilliant with the information Um, so she mapped out a very clear, concise plan uh, for me. Uh, she was working with me. I think it, I just felt very supported the whole time. Uh, some of the things that we saw there was a deficit with me was particularly DHEA uh, and then also omegas. So they got me on a couple of nutraceuticals and I swear to God, um, I, since starting these guys, I feel um, almost uncomfortable saying it like this because it's an ad but it truly made a massive difference my word recall my energy levels my libido um, has has significantly shifted since starting so i'm freaking excited and i would absolutely implore any of y'all to at least get the diagnostic done so you can get that snapshot of what's going on inside of your blood what is going on inside of your biology biology so you're not guessing. You know exactly what's happening and then you can start making decisions from there. If you'd like to get 15% off, uh, you can go to mylifeforce.com. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E.com and then use a line code at checkout for 15% off. And that is a very meaningful 15% off as well. So I can't recommend it enough. I think you guys are going to really dig it. I think it's going to be really amazing for your own health journey jump over to mylifeforce.com and use the Align code for 15% off. I wonder, I know that we're getting to the end of of, uh, the hour. I don't know what, how much time did you anticipate? I would love to ask Yeah, I got about 15 more minutes. Okay, cool, sweet. Yeah, there's some Mm -hmm. more. So something that I am, I guess, curious about in a way or more just kind of like dumbfounded by is in the conversation between the two opponents you know, vegans and essentially everyone else, you know, any kind of like omnivore um, dietary lifestyle approach. I feel like a person that identifies as plant-based or vegan actually has a a lot in common with someone that is a a omnivore that is like, like a conscious omnivore, maybe you could say. Or someone that's, that's interested in, um, you know, better farming practices and maybe going to a farmer's market and getting to know, like having a garden and, um, you know, but the, the conversation stops and gets muddled by industrialized farming industry. And it's, that's like, I think everyone can agree that that's not good you know and chickens being piled up on top of each other and cows you know being injected with all the different things and standing in their own feces and all that and somehow that gets conflated with eating meat. Yeah. It's it's very strange well, like if, if there was some way to just stop that entirely, <laughs> you know and say hey, no that like we all agree that sucks. Now let's were, now let's start a conversation.
1: If you are a conspiracy theorist, you might wonder is who's in, who benefits from Hitting vegans and, you know, response ethical omnivores against one another. <laughs> I'm not saying that this is what's happening, but mm. it is interesting to me to consider that because either way, what stays in the background is the abuse of industrial agriculture and the right. damage that that's doing. And instead of both, both of those groups, plant, you know, plant-based diet advocates, and ethical omnivores who are advocating for similar types of food systems that support uh, local communities that are healthier for the planet, better for farmers, instead of them joining forces and and working against the big agribusinesses, multinational agribusinesses, they become enemies and the agribusinesses remain in the in, in the shadows, uh, continuing to do their thing. Yeah. So, that strikes me. And, and again, I, I don't have any direct evidence that that that's part of the playbook, but we've, we've certainly seen, um, other similar efforts, um, of, you know, there, there's a word for astroturfing, you know, like in, in different types of, in different fields, in different genres where, um, these large multinational corporations have very sophisticated media and marketing, uh firms that are taking all kinds of steps to turn attention away from the harm that they're doing. So, wow. yeah, I agree with you and I just on a personal level, you know, I have friends who fit into all those categories. I have yeah, friends that are vegan. I was a vegan myself many many years ago when I was struggling with my illness. It was one of the many things I I tried in the in the you know, process of trying to get better. Um and I f- often find that we have more in common than someone who's just Totally not thinking about any of this stuff at all, and going to McDonald's and yeah. you know eating processed industrial food. I would probably ra- I would rather eat at the vegan's house if I was to go, you know, like go to dinner yeah. uh, somewhere. And and so yeah, I think there's that common ground. Unfortunately, has been obscured by the 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 points of differences.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had um, Anya Fernald on the podcast, and she was she was the founder of Belcampo. They had all sorts of You know, there was some, some bummers that manifested within the the company, but, um, in that conversation, one of the things that really struck me was like, she was more compassionate towards animals than any person I had met. Um, let alone like a plant-based or whatever. She just, she really loved animals and she knew everything about animals, you know, and animal husbandry, like that was her life. And she was a producer of animals to, to feed people, you know, but she, the, like the, the effect that she had on, um, you know, supporting the, uh, recuperation or the, you know, the healing of, of land that would potentially turn desertified. Um, by bringing ruminants to poop and pee and stomp and walk around and all that, like the way that that's an industry or the way that, that, that gets perpetuated by humans is for human people, humans to have interest in that, which, you know, becomes farming. It just, it's just, it has to be more responsible farming mm-hmm. practices. But that really struck me that her job is to provide animals for people to eat. And the level of compassion that she had for animals was unlike anything I've actually experienced.
1: Have you spoke, spoken with uh, Nicolette Hahn Nieman? You no. know her. her story? No. So you know, uh-uh. you know Neiman Ranch, the big, huge beef producer, the the uh, organic beef producer in California.
0: It's familiar, but no, yeah. not really.
1: So uh-huh. Nicolette Hahn that was her. I think maiden name before she married Bill Neiman. I think is his name. She's a she's a vegetarian who raises cattle. Mm. Uh, so she's married to one of the largest, um, you know, uh, organic cattle ranchers or in, in the U S and, or in California, possibly the U S and she loves animals. She was a vegetarian primarily for moral and ethical reasons. Mm -hmm. And she, I think is still a vegetarian for the most part, although she, she may have sort of ventured out recently Mm -hmm. into the animal product territory a little bit, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that it's, and she's actually she's also an attorney and she writes books and speaks about the importance of animals in the food system Hmm. so she even though she has individually chosen not to eat meat for her own reasons she sees very clearly how animals fit into a healthy um ecological and food production system and advocates for that so it's very very interesting yeah
0: and and so another thing that I think has been become muddled up that I'd love to hear your perspective on is within the the carnivore side, which they've become very loud over the last, last mm-hmm. recent. Um, and I, I don't have, I don't really have like a particular bias. I'm kind of agnostic with a lot of things, including nutrition. Um, but within that, there's the idea of, you know they have oxalates and they have phytates and they have all these different compounds that protect themselves they protect themselves with because they can't fight you or have you know horns to attack you with so they have chemical horns essentially and so that's the narrative um, but based off of you know ancestral wisdom i guess i, I could say that doesn't seem to be consistent like it seems like we've been fairly um you know omnivore based as hominids for a very long time what is what is your your take on that whole conversation.
1: Yeah, well I think they're right that plants have evolved defense mechanisms like uh, primarily chemicals and other compounds that mm-hmm. help protect them because they can't run away and they can't fight. So I agree 100% with that. Right. Question is, does it matter? Does it does it real, have a meaningful impact on human health? We, even water is toxic at high doses. The dose makes the poison and in fact quote toxins or things that are harmful you know at, at very small doses can induce what we call hormesis which is a positive adaptation the example that everyone will be familiar with is exercise yeah. or uh, let's talk about strength training weightlifting in particular if you lift a heavy weight to failure you're you're tearing your muscle fibers that doesn't seem good, does it? <laughs> like, why would yeah. I tear my muscle fibers? Well, the reason you do that is because they will grow back bigger next time. And that's an, again, evolutionary mechanism to protect survival. If we met a challenge in the natural world that threatened us, then it made sense for the body to adapt in a way that would help us to overcome that challenge the next time we faced it. And that's how weightlifting works. Yeah, and, and so, But of course, if you lift too many heavy weights too frequently to the point where you can't recover, then it's no longer hormetic. It's now harmful. And you will just dig yourself deeper and deeper into a hole. Anybody who's ever overtrained knows what this is like. Um, So I think it's the same with these plant compounds. And in fact, there's plenty of research to suggest that what we call antioxidants in plant foods are actually pro-oxidants, but they are So they induce a very mild amount of oxidative stress. And what that does is it upregulates the body's internal antioxidant defense system. So essentially it stimulates a a positive adaptive response in the body that leads to more antioxidant compounds floating around in the blood. Sauna is another great example. Why would we go in an extremely hot box? And sit in there for, for 30 minutes or more and sweat like crazy. Well, because that causes expression of heat shock proteins, which then causes all kinds of positive, uh, favorable adaptations in the body. So we have many, many examples of this. And that's why I think that argument for from carnivores that we shouldn't eat plants because they contain some of these defense chemicals they can have a toxic effect on the body. It doesn't really it's, hold it, weight.
0: It seems like the value of any person like within this, the, a lot of this, there's the, the healthy user bias and that particularly in the, in like the plant-based realm, if you're a person that is identifies as vegan to get to that point, you probably have gone through a lot. You've probably done a lot of yoga, probably been to maybe some music festivals, you know, you probably you are dance and you're getting outside a lot. You probably love being around trees. You know, you want to just hang out by a river, meditate, there's like a lot of health there's a lot a lot of pleiotropic effects in in one's lifestyle if they've gotten to that point where they really and they care they care so much you know they couldn't imagine hurting another animal you know like that's like wow like that's so beautiful you know within that there's a lot of health um you know but it, it it i think that that's the 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 kind of the blurriness with that it kind of all gets yeah it just all gets gets mixed up it all gets mucked up True. together
1: and i i would also say it that two things one it really matters what you're switching to a diet like carnivore or vegan from so if you're on a standard american diet and you switch to vegan diet and you feel a lot better are you sure that it was eliminating meat that led to that improvement or could it have been cutting out all, you know, processed and refined foods and seed oils and just eating a lot more nutrient dense plant foods that made you feel better. And the
0: same for carnivore. Same for carnivore. So it's like, it's like you, what you engaged in probably is a fast of something that was some version of allergen or some irritant to you and you didn't know what it was. So you cleared your palate entirely. Yeah and now like wow i feel really good
1: and and there's even more i think reason to believe that with carnivore because meat is digested pretty high up in the small in the small intestine and there's very little residue that's left over to enter the colon and i think if you look at a lot of people who are benefiting from carnivore it's people with autoimmune issues or yeah. pretty severe chronic health problems that almost all are characterized by a disrupted gut microbiome and they, you know, there's a saying that fasting is a cure for all disease. It's also the cure for life if you do it too long. And so I think what carnivore is, is an extended fast, essentially right. extended gut rest that allows yeah. you to reset your gut microbiome, but continue nourishing your body with a lot of great nutrients while you're doing that and do it for a much longer time than you could do with just a water fast. Right, uh, And that's why it works. But just like that doesn't, you know, fasting for five days makes you feel better. It doesn't mean that fasting for, you know, 25 days is the best approach. I, the, I think the jury is really still out about what the long-term impacts of a carnivore diet are. We just don't know yet.
0: Yeah. The last, last question I have in relation to, to, to all this is, um, the, something that I, I foresee in the future in relation to like the carnivore conversation. Um, for example, like Paul Saladino, he's been a friend for years. I love Paul. I think he's great. Um, and he's, when I first met Paul, he was very strong, adamant, you know, all you can eat is animals. Everything else is bad, essentially, you know, and then there's like, okay, you can, you know, maybe, maybe fruit, you know, but it's not, it's not ideal. You really want to get animals in there. Uh, and then he kind of switched over. And he started to open up a little bit. Now it's like, fruit's amazing. Look at my pal. Look at my Instagram. Like, this is so colorful. This sells so much better. You know, that's like, well, white rice, you know, it may be a little white rice is all right. I I have a feeling that that community as a whole, the trend is going to start to move into that. I think the next thing is going to be preparation. And they're going to say, okay, well, if you pressure cook, well, if you ferment or all of these technologies that we've had for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years are going to start to surface and it's going to start to look a lot more like just a whole balanced diet is my feeling.
1: Very well (laughs) maybe right. I think that happened arguably in the paleo community. You know, you had early advocates like Lauren Cordain who were very, very strict and still is. He still recommends the same diet. But then you had people like me who were saying, hey, wait a second, full fat or fermented dairy can be healthy if it's well tolerated and even white rice and even, you know, some other properly prepared soaked and fermented grains and legumes might be fine if you tolerate, you know, and you get that sort of evolution over time. And if you look at like, I I think that if you look at like Google trends and you see paleo just going down and down and down Mm. over time and that, that, I think that's good. That's, that's more like just what is the, what is a healthy nutrient dense diet? Like that's what I'm interested in. Like forget about all of the extremes and all of the different labels what is the best way that we can nourish our bodies with food? That that's really the question we should be trying to answer.
0: Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that would be good to leave people with? Obviously point people into wherever would be the best direction for you to learn, to learn more or, or you have you have, yeah. clubs, you have a lot of things, but where how yeah. should we wrap things up?
1: <clears throat> so chriscresser.com is my main uh, website. That's where all the, f- the free content lives. I've been doing it a long time. So we have about 1300 articles, I think down on the site and, Fifteen free ebooks, podcasts, stuff that I've been doing since 2008. Believe it or not, um, and so yeah, you know, I think just head over to the website and type something into and search for it, and you'll probably find, you know, hopefully find something of interest there. Um, and then the, my supplement brand is adaptnaturals.com and the, uh, you know, just the one sentence explanation for its existence is, or maybe two sentences. Um, I no longer think, unfortunately, that it's possible for us to meet all of our nutrient needs through food alone. Food should absolutely be the foundation. If we think of it like a pyramid, you know, the food's down here. Yeah. Um, and then at the top is smart supplementation to help close the gaps that have been introduced by the modern world. And the, even the word supplement reflects that, right? We're supplementing something. What are we supplementing? A healthy nutrient-dense diet, and then hopefully we're doing that with supplements that are as naturally occurring, food-based, and bioidentical as possible. And that's how I've built the line.
0: Amazing. Yeah, a part of that I think is is where it gets to be become tough for a consumer is when, and this is something that maybe we can like have say for another time. But if there's a couple directions with soil, one is the soil is perhaps deficient because of farming methods among other things uh Hmm. and then the other thing that i I learned from you recently in in researching for this was um how is it the 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 plant's capacity to actually absorb the soil and plants could have much greater potential than what we're told but what is it there's some kind of like microbiome something bacterial conversation to be able to extract the nutrients
1: i can tell you're a person who and appreciates um, making connections between things. So Mm. we've talked about how disrupted microbiome in humans leads to a reduced ability to extract nutrients from the food that we eat. And that's exactly what happens in the soil. So modern farming methods, whether you're talking about tillage or um, pesticides and herbicides that are applied to the soil, they disrupt the microbiome of the soil. And one of the roles that microbes play in the soil is helping plants to extract the nutrients that are present in soil. Hmm. And so when you disrupt that microbiome of the soil, the plants actually extract fewer nutrients from the soil. Even if the the level of nutrients in the soil, if you were to objectively measure it is the same, Hmm. the plants are not able to extract the same level of nutrition from the soil. And then that affects both plant eaters and, animal eaters, because guess what? The animals eat plants too. And so if the plants have fewer nutrients, the animals will have fewer nutrients. And whether you're eating the animals or plants or both, you're going to end up with fewer nutrients. So that's one of many factors that I talk about that's decreased our nutrient availability in the modern diet, even if we're eating a super healthy nutrient dense, you know, trying to eat a super healthy whole foods diet.
0: Magnesium is one of the ones that I've, in in my kind of general lack of knowledge in the world of dietetics. I, I tend to lean on, because in the echo chambers I live, it seems like most people say you need magnesium. It's going yeah. to be tough to get it. Is there a, a short, uh, abridged list of just like, We pretty much need these ones from your perspective because we're not getting it at at modern day soil.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the Linus Pauling statistics. They do a lot of great research on nutrient availability and and consumption. Uh, 100% don't get enough potassium. This is Americans, US-based research. 94% vitamin D, uh, 92% choline, 89% vitamin E. uh, Magnesium was lower for them, but I, some recent research that I just read suggests it's probably in the mid-90s uh, in terms of the percentage of people who don't get enough. Yeah. Um, EPA and DHA, which are the long chain omega-3 fats, the vast majority of Americans don't get enough. Um, so those are probably the, the ones of greatest concern. But then I also mentioned um, the study from Ty Beal. So that was looking at iron, calcium, uh, B12, uh, and on a, on a global basis, not just in the United States, but, but worldwide. So those are probably the, the biggest ones. Cool.
0: Thank you so much, man. I've been, we've been talking about, uh, having this conversation for the last, I don't know how long, many, many years. So I appreciate making time to, to do it. And, uh, yeah, appreciate, you you. Too, Pre- Aaron. Yeah, yeah, appreciate I, the balanced perspectives.
1: I really enjoyed the the interview and the, the the different topics that we covered—they're all of interest to me—and and, and cool. so it was fun to have a such a broad ranging conversation.
0: Cool, sweet man. Uh, well, that is it. That is all. Thank you all for tuning in, and uh, yep, see you next week. <laughs> devoured that conversation Chris is a bad mofo in my opinion I really appreciate his balanced perspective uh, if you enjoyed this, por favor tag myself at Align Podcast, tag him at Chris Cresser. check out his stuff he's got a ton of great books He is uh, he's brilliant as you could hear I'm a fan, I think he's great um, check out the, I don't know whatever you want to check out, just do you how about that, just do you uh, I will see you next week I uh, appreciate you supporting this podcast. Appreciate you uh, engaging in any of the stuff that we create. The Align Method online program has been going super well. I am really excited to see the positive comments from people and the positive experiences from people. Uh, we'll be opening up enrollment for that again in March, so stay tuned. That will be that will be coming. Uh, but we have this closed container of this group now, and we're doing live calls each week, and it's freaking cool. It's good times. I uh, appreciate you guys. I'll see you next week.